As the field of bariatric and minimally invasive surgery continues to grow, the gastric bypass procedure has grabbed many of the headlines, with solid interest in gastric banding as well. Looking ahead, how might the landscape change? Will a new bariatric procedure emerge as the safest and most effective choice? You are listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest is Dr. Mark Bessler, Assistant Professor of Surgery at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and Director of the Columbia University Center for Metabolic and Weight Loss Surgery. Welcome, Dr. Bessler. Thanks for having me. If you could describe, Dr. Bessler, what exactly is a transoral gastroplasty? Well, gastroplasty is an operation that has been done in the past for weight loss where the stomach is modified by stapling the front and the back walls together to limit the size of the pouch that food can enter and increase the resistance to passage of that food. And transoral stapled gastroplasty, a newly designed device, is introduced through the mouth down the esophagus and into the stomach using suction to capture the front and back walls of the stomach and then staple them together without surgery, not even needing laparoscopy or any cuts at all. Now, not looking at the approach, meaning the transoral approach, how does this procedure differ from other bariatric procedures? Well, the current active bariatric procedures that most surgeons are performing is either a gastric bypass or some variation thereof where the stomach is physically cut and then attached to the intestine lower down to continue the passage of food or an adjustable banding of sorts where a foreign body is put around the stomach that allows us to control the opening, if you will, from a small pouch at the top of the stomach. This approach aims to make the stomach smaller or create a small pouch of stomach without actually cutting it or putting a foreign body around it by stapling it from the inside without physically cutting it, again, or putting any foreign material into the patient. Now, exactly how do you do this transorally? Well, a company called Satiety has designed and is now studying a stapling device. It's about 120 centimeters long. It can be passed down the esophagus because it's about 18 millimeters wide and flexible. It can be entered into the stomach and visualized with an endoscope. The stapler then opens up within the stomach. As I mentioned earlier, it grabs the front and back walls of the stomach using suction, pulls them into the device, and then staples the front and back walls together. We can do that several times to create what we're calling a sleeve, if you will, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but a tube of the stomach along the lesser curve where the food enters into that pouch or tube and doesn't have access to the rest of the stomach until it continues through the tube to enter at the distal end. That distal end is then narrowed by a different stapler that's introduced that sort of pinches in the walls of that tube that was just created and makes some speed bumps or just polypoid sort of lesions at the bottom of the pouch. So what you end up with is a small, narrow pouch with a resistance to emptying from that pouch. So it fills up stretch receptors in the stomach, send a sense of fullness or satiety, and patients stop eating, feeling full much sooner than they otherwise would. I mentioned sleeve because there's a fairly newer operation being done by some to try and sort of achieve the restriction and weight loss of a gastric bypass without the foreign material of an adjustable band and not have the malabsorption of vitamins and minerals associated with bypass and those types of procedures called a sleeve gastrectomy. In that procedure, we actually remove 75% of the stomach in a vertical fashion, 
taking out the entire greater curvature of the fundus of the body and a portion of the antrum and leaving just a small tube or sleeve of stomach from the EG junction down towards the duodenum, that operation causes a lot of restriction because the stomach is now much smaller, fills up much more quickly. And some say that this stapling mimics that by creating a sleeve along the lesser curvature of the stomach. So in other words, the efficacy of this procedure, again, irrespective of how you approach it, will be comparable to other operative interventions for morbid obesity. Well, that would be great if it were true. I hope it is, and that's what we're studying. Right now, we're involved in a randomized trial. There's supposed to be 10 sites. I think only three or four are active where we're enrolling patients into this study, a two-to-one blinded control. So for every three patients that come through, two are getting the TOGA procedure, and one is having a sham procedure done, and we're going to be looking at their outcomes over the next year. An open-label trial done in Europe with one-year results show about 40% excess weight loss at a year in the open-label study, and that's about as good as a lap band or an adjustable banding, not quite as good as a gastric bypass. Now, you mentioned it's experimental here in the United States, but is it done routinely in Europe? I don't think it's being done routinely. There were some open-label trials that are still going on at some sites. So in Rome and in Brussels, there are some surgeons and endoscopists who are doing these procedures as part of an open-label ongoing study, but it's not something you can just walk into your average European doctor's surgeon's office and ask for. Now, this is done under general anesthesia. It's not done under MAC conscious sedation, correct? That's correct for now. And how many of these have been done, or how many have you done? There's about 100 been done in the world. Uh, We've done 11, actually 12 yesterday. So, you know, it's early in our experience. The thing about it is that it is technically challenging from a sort of endoscopy standpoint, if you will. It's not a surgical procedure in the way surgeons think of surgical procedures. It's more like an ERCP, more complex polypectomy for an endoscopist, except that we understand stapling better than endoscopists do and maybe the anatomy of the stomach and the way the walls of the stomach work. So it's going to be interesting to see actually in the years to come whether this is done mostly by surgeons who pick up some more endoscopy skills or by gastroenterologists who learn more about you know, stapling and care of the bariatric patient. Your enthusiasm for this approach, is it because the efficacy of the operative procedure is superior than other, or is it the fact that you don't have to make any incisions on the patient and it's done through a natural orifice? My enthusiasm is certainly not about the outcomes because I don't think we know them clearly. The data is just beginning to emerge. I don't think it's going to be superior to the existing approaches. I doubt it's going to be as good in the long run. My excitement about this is based that it's a natural orifice approach. You know, we're operating on less than 2%, probably less than 1.5% of the morbidly obese patients in the United States and certainly in the world right now, a disease that there is really no other good treatment for and that causes mortality. And that's because the other 98 plus percent don't want surgery, afraid of it, don't want things rearranged in their bodies, don't want foreign materials put in. So a procedure that can be done without incisions that gets you back to work as if you just had an upper endoscopy that day, so you go back the next day with no pain, no recovery, no scars, and it doesn't leave a foreign body and doesn't cause malabsorption, I think would be tremendously attractive to the millions of patients who are getting no treatment for this disease. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals.
I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Mark Bessler, Assistant Professor of Surgery at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and Director of the Columbia University Center for Metabolic and Weight Loss Surgery. We're discussing what could be the next generation less invasive bariatric surgery. Frequently, you probably do laparoscopic cholecystectomies, and we make several small little incisions, and the patients do just fine. And as you know, there are people who are taking out gallbladders through the natural orifice technique going through the stomach, et cetera, et cetera. And you wonder if it's just trying to do something that really doesn't need to be done. What are your thoughts, sir? I grew up in the era of just the transition between open and laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And I remember hearing some of these same arguments. I had a professor here who was taking out gallbladders through a two-inch incision in the right upper quadrant. And we were using long instruments through this two-inch incision to tie things down. And they did just fine. They spent a day or two in the hospital, probably could have gotten them out in a day or even the same day. But, you know, there were some hernias, there were some wound infections, there's certainly the scarring of a lap coli is a little bit better than that was. You know, a bunch of prospective randomized trials of mini cholecystectomy versus lap coli have shown almost no difference. So you're right on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that it pushed things forward in a great way. Laparoscopy, maybe for gallbladder surgery, wouldn't have been, you know, as big a deal. But now you look at gastric bypass colon surgery, hiatal hernia surgery, and I don't think anybody would go back and do a mini cholecystectomy through a two-inch incision anymore. You're actually seeing it better and have a better feel for what's going on. Well, you know, right now it seems crazy to take out something through a natural orifice. It's a long run for a very short slide. I don't disagree. But with the proper technology, imagine having an operation like having your gallbladder or your colon out and having no scars, recovery similar to a colonoscopy, and back to work in a couple days, And the pain will be significantly less because, as you well know, cutting through the wall of the stomach or whatever is not the same as cutting through the abdominal wall musculature. And so if you're going to have minimal to no pain, minimal to no recovery, and no scar, that is a leap forward. It's just a little bit more foggy and further away than you can put your finger on right now. Dr. Bessler, this TOGA procedure, what are the complications of it? Well, that's a good question, and you never really know until you've done a million of them, I guess. But so far, relatively few. Everybody gets a wicked sore throat because you're putting a two-centimeter flexible, yes, but relatively stiff device down their throat. So a couple days of a sore throat is almost guaranteed. The potential for perforation, esophageal and gastric perforation during passage of this device is real. There are a little over 100 patients done in the world so far. There has been an esophageal perforation. It was actually not from the front end of the device, but a malfunction in the device where a wire perforated through. So I think that's a question of design of the device to some degree. But you know what? Anytime you're passing something large down the esophagus, there's that risk, even with a flexible endoscope. Potential of bleeding from the staples as they puncture through the stomach, but they do sort of compress the stomach as they do that, and I think that there has not been major bleeding so far. The potential for ulcers or something in the stomach in the area where the staples have been placed is dealt with by having patients on proton pump inhibitors for a couple of weeks after the procedure. Now, let's pretend that at this point that this procedure can be done and not experimental. Let's say a patient comes in and says, well, I've got this obesity problem. You determine that they have morbid obesity. You determine that they are a surgical candidate. Is there a specific candidate that you would say, well, we should use a TOGA procedure for or a different type of weight loss procedure? The holy grail of weight loss surgery right now is picking the right operation for the right patient. Right now, we use our best judgment about the changes in lifestyle that various operations require. So if you have a gastric bypass, you're going to need to take vitamins and minerals 
daily for the rest of your life. If you're not going to be good about that, there's a good chance you'll end up with some sort of deficiency that will need to be treated down the line. On the other hand, a gastric band which doesn't have the malabsorptive component certainly has more changes in eating behavior. So if you're not chewing carefully and eating slowly and avoiding eating and drinking at the same time with an adjustable band, you'll be vomiting. What if the patient had prior abdominal surgery? Would that be a contraindication to a toga procedure? No, unless it's on the stomach. There doesn't seem to be any contraindication right now. The study itself excludes patients with previous surgery on their stomach. I could imagine that if there was a lot of scarring in the upper abdomen where the posterior and anterior walls of the stomach might be scarred to other organs, you wouldn't be able to acquire them into the device with just suction alone. And we'll learn about that down the line. Right now, we're not even evaluating patients who might have those situations. Well, a common horse sense question is, uh, well, when do you think that it will be at the point where it's not experimental and the public in the United States can say, well, I want to get one of these? The trials a year follow up on the patients. They aim to accrue 100. I think we're probably at 30 some odd, maybe not even in the United States so far. So we're a tenth of the way through accrual. I guess it'll take about a year to finish accrual and then a year to follow those patients up. So that's two years. Then it's got to get approved by the FDA. That's three years, let's just say, till this is readily available. And then how does it get paid for. So then we need enough data to convince insurers that this is a worthwhile thing to pay for as opposed to the other standard laparoscopic procedures, or they'll have to pay out of pocket until that time occurs. You know, I'm just thinking with the technique that you're using, has anyone thought about doing a colonoscopic approach and being able to do an appendectomy with similar mechanics? Yes, we have. (laughs) There's actually a company specifically focused on transcolonic appendectomy, and it's doable. Again, a long run for a short slide, perhaps, but as the technology matures, absolutely. And what are your thoughts in terms of your own research? Give us a timeline. Where do you want to be with this procedure, let's say one year, two year, five years down the line? This is just one of a host of endoluminal procedures that I'm working with and that I think are going to be coming. We haven't talked about it yet, but there's an endoluminal treatment for reflux, several different devices coming down the pike, one already FDA approved and currently available for creating a fundoplication from within the stomach. There's other devices for obesity coming down the pike where we may be able to put a sleeve into the intestine to prevent absorption of food in certain segments of the intestine. I'd like to see all of that progress, specifically for the TOGA procedure. I hope that in a year we're finished accrual. I hope that after finishing accrual and following the patients for a year so that at two years we've proven efficacy, I'd like to see 40% of excess weight loss or 20% of starting weight for patients above and beyond what the control patients do. And assuming that we reach that, I think we'll have no problem getting FDA approval for the device, which should then be offered to patients either under insurance coverage if we can get it, or unfortunately, if we can't self-pay, then until the insurers come around to allowing a new procedure. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Mark Bessler. We've been discussing what could be the next step in further reducing the invasiveness of bariatric surgery. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening.